this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Jeremy Allaire, the co-founder and CEO of Circle. Circle is a digital currency company that is focused on transforming the world's economy with secure, simple, and less costly technology for storing and using money. Jeremy is a multiple-time founder. He has been from the early days of the internet, and so we immediately had a very interesting conversation about this move from Web 1 to what we consider Web 3. We talked about the diffusion of innovation, and that's something that I'm very interested in. How does new technology get diffused and adopted by the masses out there? Adoption is something that we talk a lot about, especially as regards to digital assets and crypto and blockchain. So we had a great conversation about that. And then we really focused on stablecoins. So uh, they have something called USDC, and we talked about what that is. We talked about the purpose of a stablecoin. We talked about some of the narratives that have happened from 19 to 20. Uh, Jeremy has also been really integral in the conversations and the work with our policymakers and our politicians. So we talked about his work there. He was there during the Leaper testimony and the questionings from congressmen and women. So we talked a lot about that. So this is a great conversation that talks about a lot of different important factors that are happening within digital currencies and digital assets right now. So please remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Jeremy Allaire, the co-founder and CEO of Circle. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. It is an honor and a pleasure to have Jeremy Allaire, the co-founder and CEO of Circle, with me today. Jeremy, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, David. So this is going to be exciting. Jeremy is a leader, and I'm going to say that there has always been people who say, I'm an expert, I'm a leader in this space. Eh, That's hard for me to digest a lot of the times. Jeremy is really a leader in this space, and he's been at this for a long time. He's worked in technology for quite some time. He has been talking to our politicians and our regulators, and he's been trying to build a formidable company in this space. And so we're going to talk about all those good things. But what I always like to do on the show with guests initially is talk about their past, how they got into this space. And Jeremy has a vast history uh, in technology as an entrepreneur. So what I really want to talk to you first, Jeremy, is to get a sense of your past. What did you do before Circle? And then from your perspective as a technology entrepreneur, there's a aspect of technology that I've become completely fascinated with, which is called diffusion, diffusion of innovation. So I would love for you to opine from your perspective for people that are listening to family offices and the institutional investors, how we've seen this emergence from web one that you were working with back in the day to what we're trying to define as web three. So first, a little bit about your history and your past as a technology entrepreneur and what you did, and then this idea of diffusion of innovation, if you could talk about that. Sure. Um, no problem. Yeah. So um, I, uh, Circle is my, my third company, um, sort of the fourth company I've worked with, but the third company I've sort of helped to found and build. And I've been an internet technologist and entrepreneur um, since the early 90s. And um, I got into 
the internet before um, it was commercialized when I was pretty young. And, um, you know, back in the early 90s, was just very, very excited about the fact that there was this open network um, and a permissionless network that was based on kind of open standards and open protocols. And um, things like HTTP and the World Wide Web didn't really exist, but certainly other protocols for information exchange and sharing data and communications, the early versions of those did exist. Um, but it, the, the concept of a global open network that could connect anyone with a computer to it was was a mind-blowing thing. And I sort of poured my energy into that. And then in the uh, in like 1993 and 1994, as the first um, browser technology came out, um, got very excited about the idea that uh, you could take these very simple protocols and you could effectively shift how content and media and software was created and distributed. Um, and so built, um, helped, uh, helped build a company called Alaire Corporation, which was a pioneer in internet programming languages um, and a kind of computing um, and, and application development models for the first generation of the web, Web 1.0. And we built products that were used by millions of developers and uh, ultimately, you know, tens of thousands of corporations all around the world. So if you were building websites or web applications in the kind of mid to late 90s, you very likely used one of our products. Um, and then we, uh, we, we built that into a public company and were public for a couple of years. And then we merged with another large internet software company called Macromedia. And uh, Macromedia had been a kind of dominant company in the kind of creative side of the internet. So creating content, uh, designing media, um, the kind of web design side of things. And so when we merged, it was sort of bringing the kind of, the kind of programmer, developer, you know, application infrastructure side of the web with the design side. And we worked on I became chief technology officer there. It was about a half a billion dollar revenue public company. And we worked on um, something called Flash Platform. And we built that kind of end-to-end -end model from clients to servers to development tools to create really rich applications on the internet. And there was a kind of convergence of things that we were looking at, which was sort of the growth of broadband, the emergence of new devices beyond the PC, and... Um, and these different kind of development models. And that was a um, you know, very successful um, undertaking and led me into my next endeavor, actually, which was back in 2002. Um, one of the things that we did is we put uh, video technology into Flash Player. And back then, Flash Player was the most widely distributed piece of software in the history of the internet. 98% of computers had Flash Player. And you couldn't use the web without using it. Um, and so when we put video technology in, not a lot of people were paying attention, but it was very clear to me that you could seamlessly, you'd have a seamless way to have video expressed on the internet. And, you know, again, seeing kind of broadband, Wi-Fi, new devices, internet connected TV devices, other things theoretically on the horizon, I got incredibly excited about it and ended up leaving, incubating and starting a new company called Brightcove, which effectively built a online platform for doing video and television on the internet. And I think 
again, kind of if you want to connect the dots between these different projects, I was also you know very excited about the idea that there was permissionless video distribution that really anyone with you know a a camera and um, and the open internet could reach any device with video, uh, and that would you know ultimately kind of restructure the media industry, restructure how who could participate in content and how that would all work. And we built a pretty sizable, what I call platform services business around video. And now, um, you know, Bright Cove, uh, I took public in 2012. It's a NASDAQ listed company. It is sort of the largest in this video platform market. It's a, it's a, you know, it's not a consumer facing company. It's an enterprise facing company. And you know, if you if you use media sites, if you use brand sites uh, all around the world, you're you're pretty often interacting with that technology, um, and and that powers a lot of different stuff. So I think the the interesting thing there was there's an industry which was a closed industry with closed and proprietary systems that were kind of walled off, and the internet created a permissionless open model for how, in that case, you know, rich content could work. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, in, it was actually the same year that I took that company public that I became obsessed with cryptocurrency. (laughs) Um, so in 2012, uh, you know, learned about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, um, and it was, uh, my original kind of academic interests were in global political economy, international monetary history, things like that. So that interest combined with my internet interests and the sort of belief in open networks, permissionless systems, decentralization and, and standards and how they can affect different industries. When I saw cryptocurrency, it became immediately apparent to me that um, this was sort of the next logical layer of the internet. Mm-hmm. And it was a missing layer of the internet. And that the, you know, while the, the sort of web 1.0 and web 2.0 transformed how content and media and communications and software could work. And all of those industries have been turned upside down and, you know, trillion dollar companies literally have been created and, and the like. Um, what I saw back in late 2012 when we were really digging in on this was if there was a, a similar kind of open infrastructure for value exchange and economic activity that you could build on in the same kind of trustless decentralized way that the impact of that would actually be far, far greater than the impact of web 1.0 and web 2.0. That the, you know, the, the, the economic systems that we rely upon for organizing, you know, everything from companies to, uh, to trade, to labor, to all these things around the world. Like, if you could rewrite the rules of that and the infrastructure of that more in the image to the internet, um, you could very likely turn, you know, business models upside down in the financial sphere. You could return a lot of productive capital to society. You could create models for commerce and, and how businesses operate that would, um, you know, really be transformative. And, and ultimately for people like the average person kind of create an experience with, with their with money and how they interact with the financial system, which is much more like the way they interact with content and and data and communications on the internet, and right. believed believed all that was possible. 
Something that we've talked about a lot is this idea that the what the internet was for the dissemination of information, of learning, of research, of knowledge, is what digital assets and blockchains are for the distribution of assets and wealth. And so it is, you know, something that we we share in that belief and we share in that that narrative. And it's something that I think a lot of people need to understand in a better uh, better way. So your newest company, the one that you've been working on now, is Circle. And Circle is a digital currency company that is focused on transforming the world economy with secure, simple, and less costly technology for storing and using money. If you could unpack that and kind of go through the evolutions of what you started with and where you are today. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've been on quite a journey for the last six years. And, you know, when when I go back to 2013, when we were just starting and bringing on our first investors and hiring our first employees, um, you know, it was, it was really just, you know, a set of ideas at that point. Um, and, you know, I'd like to joke, uh, and it's actually, it's put in money. They wanted to make sure, like, we weren't just going to go to jail. <laughs> because at the time, if you remember, Bitcoin was like, I mean, it was literally like if you said that word people would be like oh my god are you a criminal <laughs> um and and but no there were le- like legitimate questions which was like can we build a banking like infrastructure and company around this is that even going to be legally possible and and so you know i actually use my own money to pay like one of the most prominent uh kind of compliance and regulatory advisory firms in the world to to help my investors get comfortable that like, yes, there was a path mm-hmm. to do this legally. And um, it may be a difficult path. It may be uh, a long path, but there is a path to kind of do this legally. Um, but back then, um, you know, the, this concept of being a, a global digital currency company was very much core to what we were trying to do. And um, in 2013, there were certainly a few blockchain projects, but you know, Bitcoin was the predominant one. And we were excited by uh, kind of ideas that were coming out of the technical community back in early 2013, ideas like smart contracts, ideas mm-hmm. like issuing assets on top of this, you know, on the Bitcoin blockchain, the concept being like, if you had a you had this decentralized infrastructure that had this huge amount of security on it because of the the, the proof of work model mm-hmm. that you, if you could issue assets on it and you could program those in more sophisticated ways that that would unlock so many different use cases for for not just sort of high finance but kind of everyday kind of financial activity um, and so we we sort of bet the company that those kinds of things would evolve um, but what we did is we started with creating what I like to think of as a kind of transaction banking core that sat at the intersection of the existing financial system and its rails and the cryptocurrency system and its rails. And we created a, a, a platform that allowed us to seamlessly move instantly between fiat currency and cryptocurrency. And the idea was the everyday you know, consumers don't necessarily want to, you know, hold a non-sovereign money and make that their, the, the money that they're, you know, getting paid in or betting on as 
sort of you know a replacement for say the dollar. I mean, the investment case for for it is a different matter altogether. But just for everyday um, digital currency benefits, our, our belief was that what you wanted to do is have a hybrid system where you could combine um, central bank money and but with the kind of permissionless, open, programmable, interoperable infrastructure of public blockchains. And so we built a system that that actually allowed you to kind of uh, real-time convert between uh, dollars, euros, pounds, and Bitcoin and vice versa. And so you could spend dollars to any digital wallet that supported the Bitcoin protocol, or you could receive a payment through the Bitcoin protocols and you'd re- and they would instantly land for you as dollars or euros or pounds. And so we, we constructed that system. We got all of the licensing needed to be able to do that because we we're handling fiat money and any licensing we needed to deal with dealing with cryptocurrency. We did that through the whole US. We did that in Europe. Um, and we built an initial application, which is a free service for end users, for consumers called CirclePay. They basically made that all work. And um, that, you know, there's sort of, the the pay app was kind of the tip of the iceberg underneath it was this incredible amount of stuff that we had to build to make that possible and in um just giving a kind of quick evolution in the company in in um 2016 um you know there were it, it was very clear at that point that uh you know there were sort of these camps that were kind of dug in on different visions for bitcoin and things that we had really hoped would be possible, like issuing assets and smart contracts and, you know, higher throughput, you know, faster confirmations, all these kinds of things, they weren't happening. And actually, Bitcoin was actually literally getting slower and more expensive. And so as an infrastructure to sit behind this kind of, you know, this vision for like a open programmable payment system, it was not, it was not going to do it. It wasn't going to work. Um, so in, in late 2016, we sort of paused work on that. And we, we actually announced something. You can go probably find the blog. We're rebuilding the infrastructure behind this using Ethereum. And mm-hmm. we want to build this around this idea of fiat tokens and, um, and having an open protocol for fiat tokens so that there's interoperability amongst fiat currencies and how they move around on these public blockchains. We're going to do that on Ethereum and we're going to open source it. Right. Um, we kind of go into 2017. We developed that and then and launched it in 2018. It's better now known as the Center Protocols and the first stablecoin, which is now what people call fiat tokens, um, which is US dollar coin and USDC. Right. Um, so that was the ev- sort of the evolution of what we had originally built, um, but now built on... Uh, a public chain that had the infrastructure capabilities we needed and um, and we could kind of kind of connect a lot of the platform infrastructure we had already built, the fiat gateways we had already built and ca- kind of create that experience um, in the in the meantime um, and this is sort of a just in terms of the history um, we in building that payment system for circle pay in order to make that kind of real-time liquidity work across currencies and across the uh, Bitcoin rails, we had to create a, a real-time liquidity engine and a treasury and trading operation that could so- source that liquidity and provide that liquidity. And so we built out a kind of pretty sophisticated automated electronic infrastructure for that. And we also actually had you know traders who were managing it. 
And in right around that same time in late 2016, that started to grow into our second product called Circle Trade, which in 2017, we were just very well positioned because we had built out the connectivity, the capabilities, the liquidity. And so we built, uh, you know, one of the dominant trading desks in crypto um, in 2017 um, and, and was still very significant in 2018. Um, and as you may know, we recently sold that business uh, to Kraken. That's right. Um, and, um, but I think just the history of that was it kind of was, it was created out of a necessity of how do you provide real-time liquidity between crypto and fiat? Um, and then it, it grew into a standalone product and, and business um, that kind of rose and also fell with the tides of, 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 uh, of crypto trading. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on your background as a technologist is that you, of all people, know about pivots. You know about having to build things. You know about having to shift things, you know, about having to have to look at the market and see what the market is telling you and having to make those appropriate decisions. And so, yes, you've gone through some changes, but I think it's quite interesting. The, the interesting thing that you brought up in regards to Bitcoin versus Ethereum and the Bitcoin community is that I've brought this up multiple times and we've started to see some evolutions within the community, you know, with some improvements and some new adjustments like Taproot and Schnorr signatures and some others out there that they are starting to make some differentials to it. Uh, but at the end of the day, Ethereum has state. Bitcoin does not have state. It does not maintain state. And you know, with the idea of state, you then have Torian completeness, and you have the ability to do smart contracts. And then you have things like USDC, which is one of the things that you've built, which effectively uses the idea and the components of state and smart contracts uh, and creates this thing called a stable coin. Now, Many people have obviously, you know, the show gets people who are crypto native and people who are non-crypto native. And so people who are crypto native, obviously, you know what a stable coin is. You probably use it. And if you don't know what a stable coin is, then I would not necessarily consider you crypto native. But for people who are not crypto native, the family offices and the other institutional investors who may not understand what a stable coin is, very simply because you're you know, obviously at the forefront of this with USDC and, and in the project that you, what is a stable coin? You know, we can talk about it as being a medium of exchange, something obviously that is stable, but if you could, with a minute, you know, describe what a stable coin is and what USDC is. Sure. There's lots of different ways to describe all this. Um, I, I think one of the, there, there are different metaphors that, that people can relate to. Um, I think one of the metaphors I like is, um, you know, what does it mean to have a digital dollar? Um, just like what did it mean to have a, a digital audio track or a digital song? And um, it, was, it was very hard for people to grasp those things early on. They had records and CDs and it was this kind of thing. And eventually you had the ubiquitous interoperable sound that anyone could use and share and it worked on every device and it was sort of instant and global and you could access a celestial jukebox of every piece of song ever created. And that, you know, that was sort of this big transformation that happened over 10, 15 years. I think stable coins represent for truly digital money and truly digital currency. And what effectively a stable coin does is it takes the kind of full faith and credit of a sovereign currency, such as the U.S. dollar and you know U.S. treasuries and, and things like that, and it um, creates a way to um, uh, effectively uh, create a cryptocurrency that is you know fully backed by 
those central bank money reserves. Mm-hmm. But the, the benefit, of course, is that you get the benefits of, of true digitization. You get, just like you can with content and data on the internet, you can take a digital dollar and you can transmit it instantly to any internet-connected device uh, or nearly instantly to any internet-connected device. You can transmit it at a tiny cost. You can transmit tiny fractions of it. Uh, It's able, using blockchains, in in particular, like, you know, significant scaled, secure public blockchains, you can settle transactions with any counterparty without any counterparty risk. You can do that uh, on a, in a in an open global way, and so it's it's a very radical change in what you can do with money, including right. central bank money. And I think the, the the most exciting thing about it is, in, in many ways, like the ability to get all those benefits. You know, if you if you sort of said those things in like the mid '90s, like you're going to be able to instantly send a text communication to any other person in the world, and it'll be free. It'll work with everyone. Um, like we, 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 that's like the air we breathe now. We don't, we don't even think about that. That was like a radical idea right. back then. And, you know, and, and things like, uh, you know, international telephone calls or, you know, uh, you know, if you wanted to get a, something to someone quickly, you had to pay a big fee and use these specialized devices called faxes, all this sort of stuff is completely insane. Just like cross-border payments is completely insane today. Right you know, in five or 10 years, like the notion of a cross-border payment will set, will be as absurd as a cross-border email sounds to us today. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of stuff just becomes the air we breathe and just becomes everywhere, we think, over time. And the, the ability to extract margin and fees out of moving value around will collapse to zero. And that's going to be, I think, very, very powerful. I think the really exciting thing about a digital dollar, though, and why stable coins are so exciting is because they exist on this public computing infrastructure called public blockchains. And they exist, as you said, like on a, on a system where you can write Turing complete business logic and code that's tamper proof and immutable. And you can publish that and in the form of economic arrangements between counterparties and you can automate economic activity in really powerful ways. And that part, the programmable money part, the world has never seen. And we haven't seen yet what the creativity of really smart business people and technical people are going to do with it. But that's the really, that's actually like the, the, where's the beef in all this, you know? So the, the, there's um, a lot of excitement, um, you know, around that. And that, and that's the sort of, you know, to me, if, if you're, you're trying to get your head around this, um, I think I would encourage people to think about like, if you had truly programmable money that was instant and global and you could, imagine different types of economic relationships that could be written in code and enforced by machines without counterparty risk. That's, that's just a breakthrough we haven't seen before. And that's why I think these are so exciting. I agree. And I, you know, one of the things I've been talking about for probably at least two years is the notion we get very excited when we hear that Bitcoin is accepted here, Bitcoin is accepted there. Oh, you're going to be able to buy a latte with Bitcoin, you know, because of, the relationship with backed the idea many people for people who have been holding bitcoin who have been buying bitcoin who have been hodling bitcoin as the terminology is that it would be insane to be able to dilute you know five and a half six dollars you know to buy a to lot to buy a latte 
also the taxes on that, you know, every time you, you would do that, there is a realized gain there. And so the idea of that has not necessarily manifested, especially for people who understand it in a more native uh, capacity. And so the idea around a stable coin is that it's more of a medium of exchange. This is not something that you are speculating on uh, future, you know, improvements in value. You're not, it's, there's no creative value to it per se. It is supposed to be stable asset that is something that you can spend freely, but as Jeremy alluded to, it does not have the restraints that our current fiat system does. And so so people can understand that this is something that's really important. So you can actually use this without worrying about the speculation aspect of a you know a dollar digital asset like Bitcoin. So Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, things like digital currency in this form, um, yeah, they're like building blocks for the future of internet commerce. If we think about what internet commerce is today and how people and businesses globally can enter into commerce relationships with each other um, over the internet, this is sort of the next logical layer of how commerce and trade and and value exchange is going to happen. And you know, you you need blockchains to sort of advance that, and you need you need this type of digital currency, which we you know, we're calling stable coins right now. Central bank digital currency is the other phrase people are, are increasingly using, which has you know different connotations. But but fundamentally, it's about how do I take you know central bank money and represent it as a digital currency, get all the benefits of digital currency um, in in my business. Right. A lot of people have been talking about Libra because that was the talk of the town in mid 2019. And then with China's efforts with uh, CDEP, it appears that there is some news that came out uh, this morning, um, you know, basically about what that's going to look like. And so we are seeing sovereign nations start to take a hard look at digitizing their fiat currencies. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, that's obviously something that we all need to take a look at. But at the end of the day, there is an adaptation and adoption of the underlying technology, which at the end of the day, I think would be a very good thing. But, you know, that's we have to obviously see about that. A tweet that you recently put out that I think is interesting. We talked obviously just about the sovereign digital assets and you brought that up, Um, you know, in relation to 2020 being the year of the stablecoin. Do you think that really is the case? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's a there's a tweet uh, that I retweeted, or there's a piece of data that I retweeted, which is basically the stablecoins account for now the majority of transactions on the Ethereum mainnet. Um, and so, you know, in, in many ways, for you know, for these you know general purpose blockchains, and and I I'll, I'll sort of separate Bitcoin from that because it's not currently a general purpose blockchain, but for these more general purpose blockchains. The fact that stablecoin transactions are now the majority really suggests that we have we've moved into we've moved into a world where stablecoins are the killer app of blockchains, and um, that's just going to grow because more and more people are going to use these um, for more and more different types of applications. And um, you know, that's a that's obviously a huge focus for Circle is how do we enable businesses everywhere, developers everywhere to take advantage of this for things that they want to do to innovate in. In payments and commerce, but I, I think um, you know. So I do think it is the year of the stablecoin in that way. Um, it's it's growing in that way. It's also the year of the stablecoin in terms of reaction to new initiatives that have either been proposed or are potentially going to become uh, available. Some of them from large, you know, private technology companies. Some of those from governments. But it's also organically what's been happening. Just 
just like what I just described, which is that we now, you know, blockchains are here, they're growing. The, the you know, the, the, this sort of majority of transactions on the Ethereum may not being stablecoin transactions. All of these are, um, are indicators of that. But I think, um, you know, there's an incredible amount of attention from world economic leaders, governors of central banks, people who run, you know, the, the, the finance and economic systems of the G20. Everyone is now focused on this and ensuring that, um, you know, this is going to happen. Everyone is now acknowledged this is going to happen. The, I think everyone acknowledges that the technology is approaching a point where this could touch billions of people. And, um, you know, policymakers are, are going to step in and they're going to define rules for how this is going to work um, for society. Um, and at the same time, we've got the open development community and this sort of incredible kind of groundswell of bottom-up innovation that's happening and mm-hmm. sort of getting those to meet together is, I think, one of the things that I view as one of the, my most important objectives is how can we preserve the ethos of the kind of public internet and open protocols and standards and decentralized permissionless systems and the kind of risks that, you know, governments care about when it comes to money. Whether it be you know you know lots of stuff there, so I, I'm curious. You know, a lot of family offices and institutional investors typically ask me. So, what is the opinion of the the politicians out there? What, you know, we've seen with Libra hearings. I think you might have actually been a part of that at one point in time. They've tried to understand digital assets. They've tried to understand Bitcoin. We've obviously even had congressmen who have said that Bitcoin is an unstoppable force, basically. And so I'm curious from your standpoint, and I'm not asking you to speak for all congressmen and women out there and for all the politicians within the United States governing bodies, but from your opinion, from what you've seen in terms of speaking to them, in in terms of testifying in front of them, do you feel that they are getting it? You know, with... um you know, with political leaders, I mean, you have appointed officials, for example, who are have very, very deep specialty, you know, sp- you know specialization and knowledge. Say, you know, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin, or uh, you know, appointed officials of the Fed, or, or career civil servants in these administrative uh, groups. I think in in those cases, there's actually you know, you know, increasingly very significant amounts of of knowledge. Um, you know, every major, and I'm not just talking about the U.S., but if you look around the world, but just say focus on the U.S. for the minute. You know, within these agencies, there are people who are getting very, very sharp on this stuff, and um, and that's good. On the on the sort of um, legislative side, so Congress and and the Senate and the like. Yeah, the 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 leaders themselves, um, the congressional members. I mean, they they've got a you know they got ten thousand things that they have to focus on and understand, and so it's really you know the more you get into say the agricultural committee or the banking committees, financial services committees, it's really the staffers who are getting really sharp on this stuff, and they're doing their you know they're doing their job, which is to make sure that they're the elected official who they work for is, you know, informed and the like. So I would just say it's just continuing to grow. The awareness and education is continuing to grow. And, um, you know, I certainly spend uh, a reasonable amount of time at the global level and at the national level, not just in the U.S., but in other nations, you know, focused on these topics because it's so critical that that we get it right. 
Um, and it's very clear that in particular, when it comes to how does central bank money work with digital currency and how does this innovation in the kind of fundamental architecture of how money moves around and, and how commerce happens, like, you know, we, we want to preserve the most positive benefits of this. Um, so it's, it's really critical work right now. I think, um, you know, the other piece, though, and this is maybe on more of the investment side of this, um, you know, I would just say pretty uniformly, not just in the U.S., but in most markets, I mean, there's wide acceptance of Bitcoin as a legitimate commodity asset that people absolutely should be free to invest in, hold, um, and uh, I, don't, I don't see any uh, challenges there. And so as a digital commodity um, that has an investment thesis behind it, which I think we're all pretty familiar with, um, I think there's wide acceptance there and, and the maturation of market infrastructure um, is obviously pretty compelling. And so I would expect that uh, to the degree that um, investors are interested in, you know, the, the thesis of digital gold um, and what that represents, you know, I think that will, you know, that, that is in some ways that is unstoppable. That will continue to, to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think this realm of, you know, stable coins and tokenized securities and how do financial contracts that are implemented in code, how do you deal with those from a, a regulatory perspective? Those are those are the things that are, are more complicated um, and people are just starting to get uh, their heads wrapped around. So you were talking about, you know, kind of your global travels and talking to policymakers and to those you know, uh, obviously at the head of state. So you were just in Davos for WF. What was the overall sentiment and what were some of the narratives that were discussed? Yeah, it was really notable. Um, so uh, this year, the topic of digital currency within the, the group of people at Davos who are sort of the world economic leaders, so the heads of central banks, people who run the major financial institutions, supranational economic policymaking bodies, um, large financial technology companies, um, you know, there, there was a, there was a real desire to talk about this issue. Um, and, and one of the outcomes of the week was in fact, the world economic forum has now convened a consortium of, I think around a hundred of us to work on, uh, trying to drive standards for the governance of, uh, of digital currency in the world. And, there's a recognition that the public sector or the private sector need to work together on this uh, and that the the sort of standards for how this works in the world are going to rapidly emerge over the next one to two years. And the World Economic Forum wants to be, you know, use its convening power to, to drive those discussions forward. I would say within the rooms where we're talking about these things, there are many different vantage points, right? There's the vantage point of you know, central banks trying to decide if they should do something themselves or work with the private sector. There's also the vantage point of there is this fundamental innovation of private sector stable coins, and you know there has to be some rules around that. I think there's also the vantage point of players who are you know very much already, let's just call say like central to how payments and settlement works in the world, and to some degree. Uh, pr- trying to protect a little bit of 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 how how things work 
Um, so there's a lot of different vantage points there, but I think the most important thing is that this is now a considered to be a really critical topic in the future of financial and monetary systems in the world. Um, and that you just couldn't have said at any time prior to, to now. I mean, it's, right. you know, when, when I think about where we were six years ago and we were thinking faster than I anticipated, I thought it might be 10 or 15 years before that was really um, taking place. And so I think that's encouraging. That is encouraging. And so while we have you and as we're wrapping up, the two things that we'd like to do with guests to get a little bit inside of their brain, if you will, um, what are the things that you are reading or reading um, books that you might have come across the last you know few weeks, everyone within the kind of digital asset and blockchain world? are multidisciplinary. We read a lot. It's either on economic theories or cryptography and any number of different things out there. So anything that you've read recently that resonated with you, it could be crypto-related or not, and any music that you might listen to while you're traveling and doing your day-to-day activities, any music that you might listen to aside from books. So there's uh, there's two books I'm reading right now. Um, one is um, uh, a story uh, or a book about the kind of leadership uh, and management philosophy of Bill Campbell, um, the kind of prominent uh, uh, senior executive out of Silicon Valley. It's called Trillion Dollar Coach. It's just a fantastic book, um, and I'm I'm reading that just to get inspiration as a as a leader, as an executive, as a manager. Um, and so that's one thing I'm I'm reading. Um, and then the other is a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist. Um, and the particular book I'm reading of his, he's got a lot of things published is, it's a book called fear. And it is really just, um, it's a inspired by, uh, you know, mindfulness, uh, practice and understanding, uh, how we, as you know, as humans, uh, experience fear and, and really overcoming that. Um, but I, I've been over the past several years, really actively practicing mindfulness and, um, and I'm really inspired by Buddhist thinking. And, um, so enjoying that, um, and, uh, trying to be as present and aware and connected to uh, people as I possibly can, um, to, awesome. to, uh, to be effective yet. Yeah. And then music. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm like, uh, pretty straightforward on that. Um, I listen to Spotify or I use Spotify and, um, I uh, primarily listen to what they program for me and what's called mm-hmm. your daily drive. Um, so, and what that ends up being is, uh, you know, a touch of NPR plus um, uh, a heck of a lot of electronic dance music. There we go. Another, this is, you know, overarching. I love it. You know, obviously as anyone who's listened to this, I was a DJ way back in the day and another life and, EDM is something that's a very big part of my fabric. And so I did not know that was coming. So that's exciting to hear, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I used to produce electronic music a long time ago. Oh, my God. Wow. The th- you see, this is why I asked the question, because it yields such interesting results. We'll have to talk about that offline. Um, the other last thing I like to do, where can people find out more or get involved or, you know, obviously participate with what you guys are doing at Circle? Yeah, sure. Circle.com. Um, you, we have, uh, yeah, if you want to play around with USDC, you can get it there and you can start to interact with it and use it. And 
um, there's sort of, you know, some content up there about it and we're hiring. And so if there are roles you're interested in, um, you can check that out, but, um, yeah, go to circle.com. This was Jeremy Allaire. What a fascinating and just an amazing path that he's had uh, with the company and with what you've done before. Thank you for coming on the show, Jeremy. We'll hopefully catch up with you towards the end of the year and see how all of the efforts with the stable coins and the work that you're doing with policymakers is going. Thank you for coming on, Jeremy. My pleasure, David. Thank you. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.